You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Food and holidays have been inseparable since the beginning. It's a tradition that's celebrated and continued in historic foodways where 18th century recipes are recreated and savored every day. Barbara Shearer is our guest today. She's here to talk about a very special cake that was part of colonial holiday celebrations. Barbara, thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Well, we're here today to talk about a Twelfth Night cake. And I think before we even discuss this cake and its history, maybe we should remind people what Twelfth Night is. What are we celebrating? Well, you know, Twelfth Night is on January the 6th. And it's a celebration, actually, of the arrival of the three kings to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus Christ. And it also celebrates the end of the Christmas season. In colonial uh, Virginia, Christmas was an entire season and not just a single day. You started on the 25th and you finished on the 6th. There was dinners, there was balls, it was a social occasion, weddings even. Thomas Jefferson gets married during this season. George Washington gets married during this season. Lots of parties, lots of fun. Your Twelfth Night party is actually going to be on January the 5th because it's going to be over midnight. The Twelfth Night cake goes way back. It's a very old custom and it's the biggest festival time of the year. And of course the Twelfth Night cake is, is the highlight of the evening and actually it is a large rich fruit cake. So that's, a, so that's what you're making here. You're making a rich cake. Uh, the cake that um, I made was from Hannah Glass. And when we talk about Hannah Glass, this is one of the historic recipe sources, one of several that you use year-round in historic food yes. waste. Who is Hannah Glass? Hannah Glass is um, what I like to describe as the Julia Childs, the Mrs. Beaton of this time period, because she was in reprint for 150 years. She is uh, the art of cookery made plain and simple by Hannah Glass. So this cake was as indispensable to a Twelfth Night celebration as maybe pumpkin pie is to a Thanksgiving celebration yes. today. Yes. And it's the, it's the predecessor of the modern fruit cake, or maybe yes. an ancestor. But you've got to realize the Twelfth Night cake, by the time you've done it, and you've coated it in brandy, you're not going to want to give this to your neighbors. You'll want to keep this and eat this. It's so funny because now fruitcake is sort of reviled, but this cake, the Twelfth Night Cake, sounds like a very different animal. Oh, it is. It is. I make one every year. Basically, in this time period, you would have uh, made your Twelfth Night Cake around October time, and then you would soak it in brandy, brush it on, pour it on, a shot every two weeks. It, what it does is when you bring out your cake from the oven and it's still warm, put your first lot of brandy on because it's going to be, it's going to sweeten up those, those fruits on the outside go all dry. So if, if you brush some on this with warm brandy on this when it's just come out of the oven, it softens them and doesn't give you that burnt taste that some cakes do. So that's always the trick when you're doing a fruit cake is to do that to it. What they would have done, they would have put a pea in it and a bean in it. The bean represents you would have been the um, king of beans. And the records we have um, here uh, says that in 1563, Mary Queen of Scots indulged in the Twelfth Night Cakes. And she also um, had 
one done for the party she was attending and her attendant Mary Fleming got the bean and she the Queen played along with her and gave her staff and her her cloak because she then called her the Queen of the Beans and she was the Queen for the night. What a lovely tradition so whoever gets the slice of cake that has the bean in it. Yes indeed and of course, I say some people uh, put a pea in it too, and uh, so it's usually king of the beans and queen of the peas. We've talked a lot about the tradition. I want to talk a little bit about the recipe itself, which I want to mention as part of a body of work that you and your colleagues and Historic Foodways have done. We can even point people to this recipe now. Yeah. It's on a Foodways blog at recipes. History.org, where visitors can find um, not only the 18th century Hannah Glass recipe, but a modern translation of it yeah. so that they can attempt it in yeah. their kitchens at home. But looking at this recipe, what strikes me is the quantity of it. It seems enormous. Four pounds of flour, six pounds of butter, two yes. pounds of almond flour, four pounds of eggs. What yeah. kind of quantity are we talking about? We're talking a very large cake. I mean, we're not, I mean, when you have these parties, you're not just having a couple, four or five of you at these parties. It's a lavish affair. You know, so it's a really massive cake. It really is. You need a good brick oven to make that one. And you mentioned that this is something you would bake in November, in the fall. October. October. And douse it with brandy. Does this preserve it until you're yeah, ready to serve? It does. And it also makes it uh, taste good, too. And I like to say it becomes a happy cake. So what happens to it as it sits for that long? All the flavors blend in together and that brandy keeps it moist and it's not going to dry out on you. And the, the fruit inside is not going to go hard. When you keep on putting that brandy on, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be absolutely delicious. You'll want to make it next year. I mean, some people put, some people put vodka on it. Some people put rum on it. Really, it's up to you. I like brandy. I think it finishes, it just adds a nice flavor to it. Um, but if there was some other spirit that you wish to do yourself that you prefer, you don't like brandy, then you can really do anything you want to it. As it sits that long and as it soaks in these small regular doses mm -hmm. of brandy or whatever alcohol you prefer, does it become a denser cake than it would if you were to slice into it the day you baked it in October? How does it, how does it change in those months? It just adds the flavor to it. The flavor is what you're adding. The, the density still stays the same. It's just maybe, maybe a little bit more moist than what you would think of, but um, basically it's just a wonderful flavor. These ingredients, not only are, are they enormous in quantity, but they suggest a sort of extravagance to me, the eggs, the butter, the sugar. Would every household have been able to bake a cake of this richness, or would this have been a cake you only found in upper-class households? This would have been a cake you would only found in wealthy people's homes. Um, poor people um, might boil, boil something, a bit like what, what, what we do today is a boiled Christmas pudding. Um, plum pudding, but um, basically you've, you've got to have a large oven for something like this. And who would have baked this cake? Would it have been the lady of the house? Would it have been a slave? Would it have been a professional cook that they'd hired? Well, it depends on whose household you're in. At the last two royal governors, it would have been the highly trained professional men doing it. But on the other hand, if you're looking at Peyton Randolph's household, 
you're looking at a slave woman there, George Wythe, a slave woman, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington are both male slave cooks. So it really depends on who's, who's, who's running the kitchen at that time. I mean, the lady of the house will run the kitchen, but who is actually cooking the food? So if our listeners want a taste of this tradition and want to connect their history to the 18th century, to the 17th, the 16th centuries prior, uh, and they want to cook this in their own kitchens, what tips would you offer to them as they're trying to um, prepare this cake? Well, I would, I actually make mine, I mix, mix all my ingredients together in a large bowl the night before. And then I cover it in saran wrap. Your wet and dry ingredients the night before? Everything goes in the night before. And then I just leave it sitting in the kitchen overnight. And I know you're all going to go, there's eggs in there, there's eggs in there. I've got to put it in the fridge. No, don't put it in the fridge. It's okay to leave it out. Eggs don't have to be refrigerated, believe it or not. Um, and then, of course, the next day I will grease my um, cake pan and I just use a normal round one not a Turk's cap or a butt pan that you do here just a normal cake pan I grease it and flour it I place it in and then I bake it off and you said that you mix it all by hand with not by mm -hmm. hand using a spoon but your physical fingers yeah what is the difference when you mix a cake that way you can feel the texture you of it. can feel the texture because it says cream butter sugar together and how can you know when you've creamed your butter and sugar together if, if, if you use a wooden spoon? The lighter you cream them together, the lighter your cake's going to be. So you cream and cream, and then eventually you'll, so you'll feel the sugar melt with the heat of your hand. So that's what you're looking for. You're creaming together all these wonderful butters and sugars and... Then you, you know, add your flour and your eggs and, but mix it all by hand. You'll feel the texture. And of course, it's wonderful for the hands. You'll have beautiful soft hands by the end of it. Well, Barbara, it's been so fun having you here today. And I hope folks give this cake a try. Oh, please and do. And resurrect the fruit cake as it, as it was meant to be. Thank you for being here today. No problem. Thank you. We're always glad to hear from you. Send comments or suggestions from our webpage at podcast.history.org or find us on Facebook. To support the podcast and other Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org slash donate.